Radio.ie hosts the Irish History Show podcast because history matters. Radio turns 100 years young this year. Radio's history is powered by Radio Archives. For radio archiving solutions from people passionate about radio, visit radio.ie. Welcome to the Irish History Show. My name is Cahill Brennan and as always I'm joined by my co-presenter John Dorney from theirishstory.com. Please check out our friends at radio.ie for all your radio archiving solutions. You can find this episode and all our previous episodes on our website irishhistoryshow.ie. You can follow us on Twitter at irishhistorypod or on Facebook facebook.com forward slash theirishhistoryshow. If you get a chance, please rate and review the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help us. And if you hear an episode you like, please share it on your social media. We are really grateful for all the support we receive from you, the listeners. John has set up a Patreon for the Irish Story and the Irish History Show. And if you would consider supporting the show, there is a link in the show notes. Thank you, and we really, really do appreciate it. Now, on this episode of the show... We're going to be returning to our theme from last episode, and that was the Desmond Rebellions. So we're moving on from that to the next big episode in Irish history, which is the Nine Years' War. Now, we're really getting into complicated territory now, aren't we, John? It's all complicated, certainly, to our eyes, our 21st century eyes. I mean, I guess it made more sense to the, the locals in the 16th century, if you know what I mean. Yeah, it's complicated, but it is fascinating. And as we do tend to concentrate an awful lot on 20th century Irish history, you do have to sort of give this context to really understand a lot of the issues that pop up in later centuries in Ireland. Absolutely. And also the people in the 20th century and even today look backwards to the 16th and 17th centuries to explain their attitudes of today. So it's a very formative period in Irish history in that way. Well, no doubt, like you're talking about the Reformation, the plantation of Ulster, the end of the Gaelic aristocracy in Ireland, and really the with the shiring of Ireland and all these type of things, the extension of the English state throughout Ireland, it's really, really a very important formative time in Ireland. Definitely. I mean, even Irish counties date from this time, which we think of as a very Irish thing, but they are... 100% English, you know, in, their, in that they were administrative units of the new English Kingdom of Ireland. Now, we're going to retread some of the uh, things that we dealt with in the last episode, but we should really go back into the background to the Tudor conquest in Ireland. So how does that come about, John? So we went into greater depth in this in the last episode, which was on the Desmond Rebellion. But basically what it comes down to is this. Under the Tudor monarchs of England, starting with Henry VIII, they decide they can no longer have Ireland as a semi-detached lordship where they control only a little bit because it's a potential source of instability, especially once they've fallen out with the Pope and with Catholic Europe. It becomes a possible backdoor for hostile powers to get a foothold and invade England itself. It's also potentially a source of hostile monarchs who could gather a power base and then, like themselves, the King of England or the Queen of England. So for all of these reasons they decide that they finally have to control all of Ireland. And it starts off with an attempt to conciliate the 
Gaelic lords and the old English or the Anglo-Normans, however we want to term them, but the lords who were of English descent, attempts to bring them into a new state, which is the Kingdom of Ireland. Henry VIII declares himself to be the King of Ireland. The lords come in, they surrender, and they are regranted their land with English title. And the English think, at the time, rather naively, that that will be the end of it. So that they'll come in, they'll accept English law, they'll be parceled out their land according to English fashion, the English language will begin to predominate, English ways, civility, as they called it, and finally also the Protestant religion, although they very much wanted this to be the last stage because they knew this would be a sensitive thing. It didn't work out, of course, like that, uh, for many reasons. One reason is because the Gaelic-Irish and also the Old English holdings to an extent were very independent-minded. They didn't want to be shoved around by central government. It's one thing to go in and make a formal declaration of uh, submission, but to be actually controlled by them is a different thing. Another problem is that these lordships are unstable, so there's always lots of different challengers within them, mainly due to the Gaelic-Irish method of succession. We talked about this last time. So once the English back one contender for a lordship, it puts them into opposition with all the other ones, and this is always a source of instability. But there's also a cultural element to it. So the English want to basically say the native culture, the native way of doing things, which means the Irish language, the Brown laws, which is the, the kind of legal system, even the mode of dressing, you know, the mode of farming, they want to replace all that with English ways. And this is never going to happen easily. You know, they're very kind of naive about this. They think as they show a superior example, the Irish will just emulate them. And thirdly, of course, they envisage settlement of English settlers. Initially, they wanted to be exemplary to show the locals how to live in a more civilized way. And of course, this, this goes down badly, but later on it becomes very kind of predatory. So settlers come from England and Wales and much later from Scotland. And they just start to take land by various means, legal and otherwise. And of course, this also provokes resistance. So by the end of the century, you've had a lot of violence. You've had a lot of different wars and rebellions. But by the end of the century, the civil reformation that they envisaged in the 1540s it really has kind of ground to a halt. So they're, it's really a military conquest now. They still want to reform, as they see it, Ireland, the Kingdom of Ireland, into a, a, an English-type state. But they know now it's going to have to be done by military force. Well, as we were talking about in the last episode with the Desmond rebellions, a lot of this violence and concurrently all the famine and the effects it has on the, the civilian population is mainly concentrated around Munster. But when we're dealing now with the Nine Years' War, around the mid-1590s, the tinderbox for the start of this war is really in Ulster. And Ulster is the most thoroughly Gaelic province in Ireland at the time. It's the one where the, the Irish really hold the most sway. Yeah, so there was actually an English or Anglo-Norman whatever presence in Ulster in the Middle, in the middle Ages, in the medieval period, the Earldom of Ulster, but that was gone by the time we're talking about. They'd been driven out again. To some extent, Eastern Ulster had been depopulated by this, and some of it had actually been taken by a Scottish Gaelic clan, the Macdonalds. But the, Scot the Macdonalds themselves are, are Gaels, so there is no real English presence at all in the province of Ulster. The province of Ulster is probably the poorest province in Ireland at the time. It's heavily wooded, it's mountainous, it's boggy. It doesn't have great farming like, say, Leinster or parts of Munster. And it really hasn't been penetrated hardly at all by the English state. Now, there have been several attempts. So 
there had been a campaign against Shane O'Neill, who had been, the O'Neills, as we'll get on to, were the most powerful dynasty in Ulster. They dominate all of central Ulster. So it's called Tyrone, but it's much bigger than the modern county of that name. There'd been a campaign against Shane O'Neill, who had basically bumped up against the English state in Ireland that they'd wanted to, they didn't consider him the lawful O'Neill or the Earl of Tyrone. They had another candidate, well, Shane had something to say about that, and there was a, a, a quite a long war with him. But he was actually killed by the McDonald's in an in, in, internal Ulster feud, if you like. But then, funnily enough, the English decided that they had to get rid of the McDonald's because they were interlopers from Scotland. Now, remember, this is quite different from later times. Scotland is a different kingdom from England, and at the time, it's a hostile kingdom to England. So the idea of an incursion by a Scottish clan into what they think of as English territory, or the territory of the King of England, anyway, is a bad thing. They tried to wipe, they tried to basically wipe them out. So Francis Drake, later of Armada fame, Spanish Armada fame, is involved in the big massacre of McDonald's, and so on. But that is also unsuccessful. So even by the 1590s, by the end of the 16th century, there's really no English presence in Ulster to speak of. The most important dynasty are the O'Neills, who dominate the middle of the province. There is another branch of the O'Neills in Clan de Boy, around the Irish Peninsula. And there, there are many other lordships, but the biggest one then is the O'Donnells in West Ulster. So they're concentrated in Tyrconnell, so modern Donegal, pretty much, although again, it's mm. a bit bigger. And then there's lots of subsidiary clans and lordships. But they, as yet, have not been brought in, really, to the orbit of the English state. Yes, they're lords back in the 15th 40s accepted titles such as the Earl of Tyrconnell, the Earl of Tyrone and so on. But this doesn't have many practical implications yet. Well, this is why I think a lot of people describe the situation in Ulster at the time as a tinderbox waiting to go off. And as you say there, it's such a thoroughly Gaelic province. It, the English language is very rarely spoken. Very few people have any understanding of English. And in terms of an English presence in Ulster, other than maybe Newry and Carrickfergus, there's very little English or Crown presence in the whole of the province. But then the Tudor state decides this thing that they're going to um, appoint a provincial president of Ulster. And what does that mean, John? So this is the extension to Ulster of what they've already tried out in Munster and in Connacht. So they've been all also a fairly bloody war in Connacht against the, the Burks there. The idea is that the Irish won't reform themselves like they're supposed to. So you have to kind of force them, is the idea. And you appoint a thing called a provincial president. And it's not an elected president. It is a military governor, basically. And he has a garrison. And he enforces English rule and English title and so on. Now, they first start to do this in the southern rim of Ulster, around modern Cavan and Leitrim. I know Leitrim isn't in modern Ulster, but mm. around that area, Cavan and Leitrim and Monaghan. And they displace the local lords, so O'Reilly and McMahon and others. And the local lords are actually hanged you know, as a result of this. So the more powerful lords in Ulster, just to their north, they look at this with great trepidation. Mm. And they say that basically they can see they're coming for us. So you, you start to see... Um, First of all, behind the scenes, a confederation, which is formed by uh, Hugh O'Neill, a man we'll talk a lot about, which is binding the most powerful lords of Ulster together uh, in order to resist composition, this English settlement being imposed on Ulster. Well, we might as well delve into him now because you just mentioned him. Hugh O'Neill, the most probably the most important person in this whole story. Who is Hugh O'Neill? Well, this is going to be one of those really long answers, yeah. Cahill, you know. 
So Hugh O'Neill is a very contradictory figure because Hugh O'Neill, according to English theory, is the rightful Earl of Tyrone. And what does this mean? Back in the 1540s, the English recognised Hugh's grandfather, I think, as the Earl of Tyrone. So the man who's going to, who has the rightful title of the O'Neills, a rightful lordship over the O'Neills and their lands. This is very complicated, and as we said before, this is almost like cutting through a fine web of all the pre-existing customs. It's, it creates an awful lot of problems. So the Gaelic idea of succession is that you are elected by the Dervin of the true kin. And this is a very wide pool of people. So this means that my cousin's cousin's cousin has as good a claim as the son of the current lord. Now, in theory, this is more democratic. In, in reality, it always usually provoked kind of violence in succession. But in any case, the point here is that the English preferred candidate, he gets taken out, if you like, by Shane O'Neill, who is the most strong, the strongest candidate. Uh, Shane O'Neill ma- makes himself the O'Neill, but he's not recognised as the Earl of Tyrone, the English title. Now, Hugh is part of the Vanquish party, and Hugh gets fostered out to a family called the Hovendons in the Pale. And many listeners will be aware of the Pale, I think, but the Pale at the time is the area basically from Dublin to Drogheda, where the only place really where English culture predominates. And he's fostered out to a family there, the Hovendons, and there he learns English and learns kind of English ways. And eventually he gets reintroduced back into Ulster as a counterweight to Shane and his sons and his family. Now by this time, actually, Shane has Shane's been killed and the lordship of the O'Neills has fallen to a guy called Turlock Linnock. He is the Earl of Tyrone, but then there's two kind of rival factions feuding underneath him. Hugh O'Neill, who was backed by the English, and the McShanes, the son of Shane O'Neill. And in a very bloody kind of dispute, Shane eventually gets rid of all the McShanes. You know, it's, it's almost like a, like a mafia war, really. And makes himself the, the Tanist, you know, the, the heir apparent to Turlock Linnock. Apparently, again, as the English approved candidate. So, you know, from the point of view of Dublin Castle, which in those days was a battlemented grey fortress, not like the place we know today, yeah. it looks like it's going well. So Hugh loyally serves with them in the Second Desmond Rebellion down in Munster. He brings a contingent down from the north and they fight on the English side. And he participates in various other kind of military actions on the English side. And he keeps in communication with them. He speaks English mm. fluently. And he says, you know, I'm, I'm your man in, in Ulster. You just need to support me and give me money and arms and stuff. And I will take care of business. Now, the problem with this is, of course is that Hugh wants to make himself all-powerful in Ulster. The English don't want him to be all-powerful in Ulster. They just want him to be basically a landlord. And they might, you know, conceivably down the road, he might be resident magistrate or something or sheriff. But But, he has his eyes on being provincial president at one stage. Yeah, so, I mean, Hugh thinks at one point, apparently, that um, maybe if they just give me the provincial presidency, then everything will be fine. The English don't want to do that because it's the very opposite of what they're trying to do. Remember, they're basically trying to disarm the... Irish lordships, make them just into landlords, basically, and have a centrally controlled state. I mean, it would still be a kind of ramshackle state to our eyes, but by 16th century standards. So the the two the ambitions of the two kind of collide. And there's lots to this. So later on in Hugh's career, when he's fighting the English, he talks about other things. He talks about a type of nationalism. He says, uh, uh, people of Irish birth should rule Ireland. And he said, you know, our country is being misruled and abused and you know, we've suffered under the English. And he also says, 
you know, that the English have brought heresy to Ireland and we must fight for the, the true Christian religion against what he calls the pagan beast. Now, how sincere Hugh is in this is difficult to say, you know. It's not very, I would imagine. Well, his, let's, just, let's just say that his ambition and his ideology kind of overlap, you know. Yeah. But and when they didn't, Hugh kind of, he espoused a different version. Well, he really comes across as this incredible political operator. And nothing more so than in his marriage life and the amount of marriages he, he's involved in for furthering his political ambitions. Absolutely, including at one point eloping with the wife of an English commander, Bagnall. Well, Bagnall, and to, to add insult to injury, uh, Henry Bagnall is one of these people that fancies himself as being the provincial president of Ulster. Yeah, and he's based in, in Newry with the, an English command. Yeah, so it's, it, it, it gets very personal in the 16th century. Very personal indeed. And we should also talk about the alliances that you made. Yes, yes, because as you say, with Gaelic Ireland, there's a lot of infighting, nothing more so than within the O'Neill family itself. Mm-hmm. But there's all these different rival clans all throughout Ulster, and Hugh is bringing them all together. Yeah, I mean, just for context, like Shane O'Neill, who had been the big O'Neill of the mid 16th century, was defeated in battle by the O'Donnells, not by the English at all. In a battle in modern Donegal, and then he's beheaded by the McDonalds over the other side of Ulster in Antrim. So, Hugh actually is incredibly astute. And you know, Sean O'Foylan, the novelist, actually wrote a biography of O'Neill, and he suggested this is because he was educated. Yes, he thought in England it was actually in the Pale, but you know, he did learn about um, the English language and kind of European statecraft. So, this is the suggestion. But in any case, he does build this web of alliances. He basically binds the main Ulster lords together, and his main ally is. A Rua, Red Hugh, O'Donnell. Now, O'Donnell and the O'Neills had always been rivals and enemies, but now they're together in an alliance. And also other important clans, like some of them who owed allegiance to O'Neill anyway, they were his Ureha, his sub kings, like the Maguires and the O'Cahans and so on, so in, in modern Derry and Fermanagh and stuff like that. Like a Gaelic lordship is incredibly fragmented if you go down the levels, like the O'Neills are just at the top, below them there's, there's lots and lots. So the short version is that Hugh O'Neill manages to bind them into a confederation which is something new, you know, so... And also, Hugh also manages to extract a kind of tax from his, his subjects, and this, is again, is new. Like, a Gaelic chieftain would always take, you know, tribute and stuff like that, and you would have to serve a little while if you were a freeborn citizen, if you like, in a thing called the Derevin or the Rising Out. But Hugh raises something new. He raises taxes, and he buys gunpowder and muskets and stuff from Glasgow, actually. Remember, again, Scotland is not part of the Great Britain. There is no Great Britain. It's a hostile kingdom. He buys arms from... Scotland, the latest he can find, some muskets and pikes and so on, and he raises kind of a standing army. And Jim O'Neill, who's the great historian of the Nine Years' War, argues this is a very modern kind of army. It's not at all like a traditional Gaelic force. So Hugh, by the time 1595 rolls around and war breaks out in southern Ulster, or by 1593 rather, war breaks out, he's ready. He has this confederation, he has, he has money, he has numbers, he has arms. And at first what happens actually is that some of his confederates, so Maguire I think is the first one, they start to resist the imposition of sheriffs and provincial presidents into Ulster. And at first O'Neill kind of in public prevaricates, but apparently in, in the background he's, you know, he's biding his time. He says to Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth I, if you just give me the provincial presidency, everything will be fine. I can control these people. Yeah. Of course that doesn't work. And so two years later he openly goes into rebellion himself or goes to war himself. When we think about the justifications for rebellion, and you mentioned it there briefly about like you know the the deprivations of their territories, 
the Tudor state is not bringing over the best and the most honest people to run Ireland from England. There's a lot of very greedy, very dishonest people who view Ireland as uh, like this treasure chest that they can raid for themselves. Yeah, well, mostly what I've seen actually is, is Munster, you know, but what happens in Munster, certainly in this time, is people come in and what they do is they try to exploit loopholes in the land holding. So maybe their ancestor had been in Ireland two or three hundred years before and they say, oh, well, this one doesn't have land holding to this. It should be mine. And, and so on. And they, they seize a lot of land and some land is just seized just by force. People can see this happening, you know, in Munster and, and to a lesser extent in Connacht. And they get nervous. So they don't want this happening in, in Ulster. So th- this is certainly one of the one of the motivations. Another one is just the brutality of people who were sent over. So, I mean, even that said, I mean, even people who had a very high reputation in England, like we mentioned, uh, Sir Francis Drake, and even the poet Edmund Spencer have a horribly brutal reputation in Ireland. And, um, well, Spencer more for what he wrote about it than what he did, but... You know, um, Nicholas Malby, who was introduced as the provincial president of Connacht, it cuts a swathe through Connacht, you know, cutting off heads, just as we talked about in the Desmond mm-hmm. Rebellion. A sheriff is put into Turconnell, into Donegal. So a sheriff in this day and age means someone who's supposed to enforce the law. So it's a little bit like a Western, you know, that we're familiar with, and it's the same term, of course. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he just he exacts tribute off people. He's basically extorting them. You know, he's killing people who don't pay, and eventually he gets driven out by O'Donnell. So... It's, yeah, you're not dealing with, uh, let's say, the most refined courtly politics of the day. Although politics, frankly, is brutal everywhere at the time. I mean, this is the era of the, you know, the 80 years war and the 30 years war in Europe, which we might mention later on. But it's especially brutal. And yeah, there's the English soldiers and governors who are sent over, they, they tend to be, a lot of them tend to want to grab a lot for themselves as well, like you said. Well, as you said there with uh, a European context, we should also mention Philip II of Spain and his problems with Elizabeth I. Yes, so this, there's a lot here. Now, as we saw, there was a, a, an undeclared Spanish intervention in the Desmond Rebellion. So it was under the cover of a papal intervention, but really it was the Spanish. And, you know, Philip II has personal skin in the game. So he was once married to the Queen of England, Mary, and... He once aspired, you know, to rule both England and Ireland and Wales. Elizabeth, of course, you know, she reintroduces Protestantism to England. She cuts off the Pope. She's excommunicated by the Pope, finally. The other thing is that Spain and England have, you know, strategic rivalry, you know. They're rivals over in the Caribbean, so famously English privateers, which is basically pirates, semi-sanctioned pirates, raiding Spanish shipping. And this is also extended into Europe. So the Spanish monarchy, just the Habsburg dynasty, inherited the Netherlands earlier in the 16th century, and what's now Holland, or Netherlands and Belgium, but the Spanish Netherlands, and they face a major revolt there from the 1580s, when um, basically the Protestant Dutch revolt against the, the Catholics, the Catholic Spanish monarchy, basically. I mean, there's just as in Ireland, there's lots to it, I mean, it's very tyrannical, and it won't respect their institutions, and it imposes taxes, there's parallels there, but the Spanish get bogged down in an 80 years war, in the Netherlands. And interestingly, the bit they managed to reconquer is now Belgium. And the bit they never managed to reconquer is now the Netherlands. Confusing, but there you go. Now, the English take the opportunity to actually intervene in the Netherlands and there's English money and arms and troops sent to the Netherlands, including, interestingly, an Irish contingent. So, 
a contingent of Irish soldiers is raised under a man called Jack D. Franceschi and a guy called Stanley. They are actually sent to the Netherlands to fight for the Dutch, but they switch sides and they go over to the Catholic Spaniards. They become the first Irish unit in the Spanish army, which becomes a long-standing tradition. But from these two axes, from the Caribbean and the New World, and also Northern Europe, they're major rivals. And of course, Spain made a massive attempt to invade England in 1588, the Spanish Armada, which failed more through bad luck, really, than anything else. So a storm blew them, of course. And had they landed in England, they could well have taken it, and Philip could have been installed as the King of England, and Catholicism would have been probably bloodily imposed on England. This is the climate of the day. So Philip II is looking for ways, you know, looking for ways to have another go, actually, at the English. And one of the ways is obviously through Ireland. So emissaries are going back and forward from between Spain and Ireland, and largely via the Catholic Church and Catholic priests. But there is also a lively kind of trade in peacetime between especially the south of Ireland and Spain at this time. So, you know, we think of communication as being a modern thing, but it also goes on in the early modern period. And Philip, behind the scenes, promises support to the northern rebels. And this possibly partly explains why they project themselves as Catholic crusaders. But especially in the case of Hugh O'Donnell, this is probably sincere as well. He apparently was a, a true believer. Well, let's get on to the actual outbreak of the rebellion. How does it really start? So it starts, as I said, with the subordinate lords like Maguire going into rebellion. O'Neill says, first of all, as I said, the only person who can control these people is me. I don't know what's going into them. So you should just, you know, give me everything I ask for and then I can control it. Now, that doesn't work. So Elizabeth and her, her ministers kind of see through him and they say he wants to be a prince of Ulster. So he doesn't get that. And finally... He goes to war himself in 1595. He attacks a fort on the Blackwater River. And the thing is, though, as we said, Hugh has, and his confederates have been preparing for this. They're well-armed. They're trained in a modern way. They have money. They have food stockpiled. And also, Ulster is pretty hard to break into in those days. Mm-hmm. So the west of Ulster is very mountainous and boggy. It still is. But in those days, it was also really heavily wooded, which it's not today. There's really only one way into Ulster which is more or less along the modern main road between Dublin and Belfast so around the gap of the north with going past Newry and this is a very narrow defile and it's it's fairly easily defended so repeatedly the English try to break through in and around there they also have a go in through Monaghan they get turned back at Clotilbert and so on basically for the first three or four years of the war the English make virtually no progress at breaking into Ulster and they're badly defeated finally Along more or less along the modern border at the Battle of the Yellow Ford, which is in modern County Monaghan. Now, the Battle of the Yellow Ford is one of these famous Irish victories in history. Oh, one of the only Irish victories. One of the only <laughs> Irish victories. Yeah. And in some ways, as Kinsale, which we'll talk about later, is an instance where everything that can go wrong for the Irish goes wrong. In Yellow Ford, everything that can go wrong for the English goes wrong. That's right. So, you know, they're. They're, on, they're attacked on their line of march, they're separated, their gunpowder blows up in the middle of the battle, and they're basically put to rout. Their leader's killed, Henry Bagnall as well. They suffer very heavy casualties, possibly as many as 2,000 killed, and they flee in disorder back south. And one of the interesting things as well is that we think of the rules of war as being a very modern conception, but after this battle, Hugh O'Neill cares for some of the uh, English wounded, uh, allows others to 
captured prisoners to leave once they've been disarmed and have their money taken off them. You know, it's not what we would imagine for warfare in the late 16th century. Yeah, I mean, I, but I do think it does show Hugh O'Neill the political animal as much as anything else. So he said to the English, look at me. You said I was a savage, you know, but, but look, I am more civilised than you. And he actually lets the garrison at Newry be evacuated by sea down to Dublin. So, yeah, I mean, I, I strongly suspect this is Hugh's, you know, cunning mind at work. Look at what a reasonable gentleman I am, you know. Well, just the thing, as we think of Hugh O'Neill as the uh, political operator and a very cunning strategist, this rebellion starts to move outside of Ulster. So how does he make these alliances with Irish leaders outside of his own province? So he had been doing this for at least 10 years before this. He really laid the groundwork and he'd made very strategic alliances, like he'd made alliances in what's modern County Wicklow, in the Wicklow Mountains, with the O'Brien clan, who were inveterate kind of raiders. But he uses them, for example, to help spring Hugh O'Donnell from prison in Dublin before the war. He sets up alliances with the discontented throughout Ireland. So he said he is in contact with the ousted or the aspirant McCarthy, more Florence McCarthy, a man I did my MA thesis on many years ago, but also people who want to restore the, the Fitzgeralds of Desmond, the Earldom of Desmond, which had been smashed in the, the Desmond rebellions, and the O'Moores of the Midlands, who again had been ousted from their lands in a, in a previous war. And Hugh O'Neill just creates this web of, of allies around the country. And this shouldn't surprise us, though. This is a man who has contacts all over the place, you know, from Scotland to Spain and, and beyond. So the thing is, though, Gaelic Ireland is, a, you know, it's a hardball world. So people are looking for securing their own particular place. And there are a few flare-ups, like, over in, in, in Wicklow. But generally speaking, the rest of the country stays quiet until Hugh has this big victory at the Yellow Ford, and then suddenly the equation starts to look different. They say, maybe this guy will win, you know, especially if the Spanish are coming. Hmm. He might look like a winning proposition, and people start to go over to his side. Now, the other thing, of course, is that many people are just waiting for this opportunity, especially in Munster. You have swathes of people who have lost their land or lost their status, so especially the soldiers, like a lot of them were executed after the Desmond Rebellion. You know, the learned class, like the, the legal class, the poets, like all of these people are persecuted under the English order. So they're waiting for a chance, actually, to to go into rebellion. And you asked, how does he how does he communicate? Well, the English certainly say there are two classes of people who are his agents. There are the poets and the priests. And they say of the two, the priests are the more dangerous. Once he has this victory, a lot of Ireland goes into rebellion. So in Munster, he actually comes down to Munster and he... He writes to the chieftains in Munster, I am coming to Munster to, know, to do the will of God against the pagan beast. Okay. And he said, I, w- I would know your position. And of course, this is translated from Irish into English by a guy called George Carew. But, you know, th- this is the kind of thing. And he comes down and the Munster plantation, which we talked about, which had planted you know, several thousand settlers in the south of Ireland, was wiped out within two weeks. Mm-hmm. So the annals of the four masters famously say in the course of 17 days, they did not leave a single son of a Saxon alive or who had not fled in the province of Munster. So this is what's going on. In Connacht, there's a similar thing. The city of Dublin is obviously very small by modern standards, but the O'Neill Allied forces, the Wicklow clans, raid as far south as Crumlin, which is like just beside where we're sitting right now. But they raid right into the townlands south of Dublin city. So it, it looks very bleak, and, and the English garrisons are shut up in kind of walled towns. Like They're not able to take any walled towns. And it should be said, there is a proportion of the population which remains steadfastly loyal. And this is basically the Palesmen and the old English of the towns. 
So even in places like Cork City or Limerick or, or Galway, they're English speaking. They don't go over to the rebels at any point. They do send agents there and so on. And mm. actually O'Neill drafts a big um, proclamation to the Palesmen in English saying why they should come over to his side. And he say, look at how badly the English have treated you and they won't let you practice your religion. And they hanged your bishops and so on. It doesn't get a great response though because the cultural divide is really still too strong. Yes. We should mention as well that um, the English state, the state based in the Pale around Dublin, is run by somebody called Lord Deputy Fitzwilliam. Yeah. Now, he does not have the best reputation. No, so he's a particularly brutal reputation. But he's also a loser, of course. You know, he's, yes. he's, he's basically in danger of losing Ireland. And so Fitzwilliam gets replaced by a man who's a, a superstar of shooter politics, which is the Earl of Essex, Robert Deverell, yes. in 1599. And he's the man who's sent over to deal with O'Neill to, to win back Ireland, if you like. And does he win back Ireland? Is he the man to, to defeat O'Neill? No. I mean, however, you know, it should be said that Essex is not as comical a failure as he's usually, <laughs> as he's usually presented. Yeah. Now, but he's given 17,000 men, which is a lot for the time. So you're, the Tudor English state is not terribly strong. Okay, mm. it's, it's a mistake to project forwards into the British Empire. 17,000 is what they send over, which is a lot, though. And he spreads them around the country and he does manage to get the nationwide rebellion under control. He sends a guy called George Carew to Munster and Carew is extremely shrewd. He's been in Ireland a long time, speaks Irish very well. He translates all the captured documents for them. But he's able to undermine the rebellion in Munster by recruiting rival candidates. Like he recruits a guy called Donald McCarthy who had previously been rebel himself against Florence McCarthy, who O'Neill is backing. Hmm. He recruits a rival Fitzgerald against what's known as the Shugan Earl, you know, the, the straw rope yeah. Earl, James Fitz, yeah. Thomas Fitzgerald. So more by cunning than by fighting. Carew manages to get Munster back under control. Um, he does also do fighting, but mostly it's this kind of skullduggery. But it does show the, the vulnerability of Gaelic society, that it is so fragmented. And as some people say, or hypothesise, that the English state in Ireland could have been defeated could have collapsed during this period. Oh, it's very close to the collapse, yeah. And I mean, all it takes really is um, enough Palesmen changing sides and then Dublin would have fallen, 100%. And even though the, the Palesmen and the people of Dublin at that time were, they got off pretty badly, like they had to quarter the soldiers in their own houses, they had to build them in their houses. And, you know, there was a massive explosion on Wine Tavern Street where something like 200 Dubliners were killed when the, the gunpowder store exploded. They didn't really go over to the rebel side also had the Spanish landed in force in 1598. There was really nothing to stop them. There was a few scattered garrisons. But okay, Essex comes in. He gets Munster under control. Leinster, to a degree, Connacht. But his certainly his forays into Ulster. And, and actually, that said, I mean, he, he had several forays which were total disasters. Like he gets a force mauled in the Wicklow Mountains. Another one is defeated at the Curlew Pass, which is between Mayo and Sligo. But his forays into Ulster are particularly disastrous. And eventually he uh, challenges Sean O'Neill to single combat. Which sounds utterly ridiculous to us. Yeah. It's, doesn't, it's not as ridiculous at the time, you know. But O'Neill just doesn't answer them at all because this is the kind of guy O'Neill is. You know, he's, he's not one for theatrical gestures. And at this point, Essex decides, you know, this is all too, like many an Englishman after him, I suppose, decides Ireland is just too difficult and he's going to go back to England. Now, the thing is, he didn't have permission to go back to England. He basically abandoned his command, like Napoleon in Egypt, you know. Mm. But he abandoned his command and came back and... The reaction among Elizabeth and her closest advisors, like Robert Cecil, who was, you know, close to the equivalent of a prime minister, is, what are you doing back here? You know, and the 
suspicion is that he's planning a kind of a court putsch himself. So he's not going to get rid of Elizabeth, but he's going to get rid of her ministers and make himself mm. top dog. And so he finally gets arrested and executed for treachery. And that's the end of him. He did kind of stabilise, actually, the situation in Ireland from the English point of view. He, you know, although he absolutely failed to take on Hugh O'Neill in his Ulster stronghold. Well, then we have the arrival on the scene of somebody else, Charles Blunt, Lord Mountjoy. Yeah, and he's, he's a man of a different character, yeah. He definitely does seem to be a man of a different character. There's several Lord Mountjoys throughout Irish history. There is, there is, yeah. And, and of different characters, I think. there's a, Some of them are, are, are liberal, I believe, in the later mm. era, 1798. But we, we get ahead of ourselves. Yes, we're jumping forward in history. But Charles Blunt seems to be um, a far shrewder military strategist than the Earl of Essex. Yeah, I mean, he's totally ruthless, so... What he does is he figures out a way to infiltrate Ulster and he does it by seaborne landings. So he does seaborne landing at Carrickfergus and at Derry. Derry is only a small village at the time. but So they land there and they raid into the heart of Ulster. And what they do is, is fairly brutal. So there's a commander called Chichester, Arthur Chichester, and he left us all this account. And he, you know, and he writes, I have burned and killed within three miles of Dungannon, which is, you know, the Dungannon is, if you like, if you only as a capital, it's Dungannon in the middle of Tyrone. And, and he said, and I killed everyone of any kind I found there. He said, men, women, children, I killed them all. And I killed their animals as well, and I burnt all their crops. And this is what's going on. So so they managed to kind of get around a very tricky place. Like, they get turned back again at several more battles around the, the Gap of the North, around near Newry. But they managed to infiltrate through this raiding into the heart of Ulster. And it, it eats away at the base of O'Neill and O'Donnell's war machine, if you like. So they take, there's, the farmers can't plough, they can't get food, they can't raise taxes either in kind, you know, or there's probably not a lot of money in Ulster at the time, and so on. They provoke a crisis for O'Neill. He has to get a decisive stroke so we can turn the war around. The thing to get across, though, is they are 100% ruthless. You know, they they kill everything that they find. Now, this provokes a famine in Ulster eventually. I've had some discussion with Jim O'Neill about this, who was a much greater expert on the Nine Years' War than me, and Jim will tell you that it's not the English raids that really caused the famine because they're not extensive enough. They're more like terror raids. He says it's the combination of them and trying to mobilise all the young men and mobilise all the food and everything for war is the, is what causes famine. But certainly there's horrific things like the English thought, right, um, that they find the people eating nettles because there's nothing else to eat. They find cannibalism, all this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But in any case, so by around 1600, O'Neill knows he has to turn this around or else he's going to be defeated. Well, enter the Spanish. Enter the Spanish. Now, the Spanish had actually planned a much larger invasion, but they actually sent it was very small. They could only manage about 2,000 troops. And sent them to the wrong place. Yeah, now this is a little bit of misunderstanding, though, actually, because we have the correspondence because it was captured by the English. And what the English said was, if you have a large force, send it to Ulster, because then we can, you know, smash our way through. Uh, if you have a middling force, send it to Limerick. Because which is you know we could cut Ireland in half, mm. but if you've only small force, send it to the south because it's much easier to maneuver there. So that's what they did. They sent it to Kinsale, which is also easier for the Spanish to get to, of course. Yeah. And O'Neill and O'Donnell marched south to join them. So I enjoy went to besiege them with all of his available forces, and it shows you like that the forces on both sides are actually relatively small. So I enjoy sends all his forces to besiege Kinsale, and then O'Neill and O'Donnell are just able to march down unopposed mm. and besiege my joy in turn. I can sail. And this is the real climactic turning point. It's often been depicted as the most climactic turning point in Irish history. And it probably is for a change. Yeah. 
Mountjoyce is smart enough to keep his eyes on Kinsale and the Spanish. He's not distracted when there's attacks on the pale. Yeah. He doesn't uh, send any forces to defend the pale. It's like, I, oh, yeah. he's, he's laser focused. Oh yeah, I mean, it's, we, we said ruthless and that's what yeah. we're talking about. I mean, the, but the big weakness of O'Neill is he actually doesn't have like artillery or what you need to take wild towns. So he's never able to do that in the Nine Years' War. And had he been able to do that, it would have been a different story. Yeah, and he basically has to march an army the entire length of the country. Yeah, and they, which they do remarkably easily, you know, considering mm-hmm. the, the logistics of the time. And the, there aren't, there isn't an awful lot in the way of roads or anything like that. Like there are roads of sorts, but they're nothing like we'd imagine them, you know. Now, as we mentioned before with Yellow Fort and all the different things that go wrong for the English, how many different things go wrong for the Irish at Kinsale? Well, everything is the short yeah. answer. So there's, I mean, from the weather, like there's a thunderstorm. So they're marching towards the battle and there's a thunderstorm and it breaks up their ranks. The Spanish are supposed to sally forth simultaneously from Kinsale. That doesn't happen. The Spanish didn't do it for some reason. There is an initial kind of skirmish which goes badly and then a certain section of the Irish army kind of breaks and runs and that disorders the rest of them. So the casualties in the actual Battle of Kinsale were fairly few. Basically, they advance on the English, they get turned back, they get pursued a bit by the cavalry and stuff. There really aren't that many casualties. There's a couple of hundred. But the army just, just retreats in disarray. Then in the mid- and this is the middle of winter, we should say. It's around Christmas Eve by the old calendar. Like Actually, it's like the 3rd of January by our calendar, but Christmas Eve in theirs. And... It's in the middle of winter, and once they're turned back, it, it just becomes a disaster. Like they, they lose a lot more people in the middle of winter traipsing back to Ulster. And this sends a signal to a lot of O'Neill's supporters around Ireland that maybe they've backed the wrong horse. Precisely. So, I mean, people actually went back and forward all the time during the Nine Years' War. I mean, even there's one of the famous stories of the Nine Years' War is O'Sullivan Bear, who was one of O'Neill's allies right down in the Bear Peninsula in West Cork today he's the last holdout after the Battle of Kinsale and finally he goes on a long march and he takes all his people up to and he ends up in County Leitrim by modern standards in around Breffley where the O'Reilly takes him in but even though Sullivan Barrett changed sides a few times you know mm. in the Nine Years War because why? because people's priorities are local they're looking out for their own patrimony there and even their own position against their own kinsmen in a lot of cases like this is the the most common source of conflict is between kinsmen actually just as after the Yellow Ford, when a lot of people change sides to back you after Kinsale, it's the complete opposite. They all start abandoning him. Even his closest allies, his Urdeha, the people who owed him hereditary loyalty, the people like O'Cahan, who control most of what's modern County Derry, and so on, they finally start to surrender. They come in and they submit to the English. So at this stage, O'Neill knows that the game is up. So how do we get a resolution? of this rebellion well O'Neill has a problem though you know he rejected English titles he formally rejected them formally has himself made the O'Neill he rejects the title of the Earl of Tyrone he's a traitor by Elizabethan standards and what Mm. does what does this mean being a traitor it means you get your head cut off you know it's no joke yes he's losing the Spanish say you know can't help you right now kind of thing oh Hugh O'Donnell actually goes off to, to Spain to try to get more help What's left for Hugh is to hold out, basically, until the English kind of soften their terms. Mm. And the interesting thing is that he holds out for quite a long time. So he holds out for two more years until 1603. And basically, he's reduced to kind of fugitive warfare in the middle of Tyrone, which is extremely difficult to penetrate. It's a huge forest in those days. 
So you have to imagine a totally different landscape to today. But you've got the Sparrow Mountains and you've got a huge forest. And the English can't really find them, is the thing. But they do their best to totally devastate the landscape anyway. And as I said, there's a really devastating famine in Ulster in that time. And the, the Irish sources say about 60,000 people died in this famine. But O'Neill holds out and holds out. And I, think, yeah, I suppose it's a kind of guerrilla warfare in the last stages of the Nine Years' War. And O'Donnell, Rory O'Donnell now. Finally, Queen Elizabeth dies in 1603. So Elizabeth seems to have taken it very personally and there was going to be no pardon, but she died. And O'Neill didn't know this, but Mountjoy at this point issues terms of surrender to O'Neill and O'Neill comes in and surrender and he surrenders at the Abbey of Maliphant, which is near Drogheda in County Louth. Mm-hmm. And the terms are actually quite lenient. So all he has to do is he has to accept back the title of Earl of Tyrone and give up the title of the O'Neill. He has to promise to obey English law and to hold his land by English title and to give up his authority over his sub-kings, his order had, and so on, and to give up his, his own military force. And he can live as a very rich man in the north of Ireland with the title of the Earl of Tyrone. And the same is true of O'Donnell and the other ones who were still at large. Now, why on earth, you may ask, would Mountjoy have offered such lenient terms to this arch-traitor? Mm-hmm. That's what they called him. And the reason is they're broke. They can't, keep this, they can't keep this going and going. Like the Tudor English state isn't terribly strong. It isn't anywhere near as populous as we imagine. It's like the population of Ireland is probably about 2 million and the population of England might be 6 million at the time. It's really not that large. It's not as prosperous as we'd imagine. This is well before the Industrial Revolution or anything like that. And it doesn't have massive gold reserves like Spain does. Like Spain is, is rich and powerful because it conquered all of South America. And even, you know, trade, like the Dutch are much more, they're much more advanced in this at this point than the English. The English are only getting started. Mm. So, they can't afford it anymore. They can't afford to keep this big army in Ireland. They want a resolution. They need a resolution. Yeah. They need to get they need to get this wrapped up. Yeah. And it's also part of a, a package where they, they sign peace with the Spanish as well and withdraw their forces from the Netherlands and so on. So this is why. But there's also a new king in town, and the new king is James the Sixth of Scotland, James the First of England. And this is where Scotland is first of all joined to England as yeah. a union of crowns. So it's not it's not the same kingdom yet, but there's Two different kingdoms ruled by the same king. Yes. And the new king, anyway, James, who had been, of course, secretly aiding Hugh O'Neill in previous decades. And as we say, Hugh O'Neill did not know that Elizabeth was dead when he is negotiating the Treaty of Mellifont and his surrender with Mountjoy. But if he did know that uh, Elizabeth was dead, he's not a traitor to the king. That's true. It, it, He's a traitor to the queen that is now dead. Was and, dead. Yes. Gone, but. and it's a different dynasty. Even. Yeah. yeah. It's true. So, I mean, you'd imagine Hugh would have even struck a harder bargain because he's, he's that type, you know. Yeah. But, uh, and by the way, I mean, in case anybody gets the wrong idea, Hugh O'Neill's an utterly, utterly ruthless man, you know, so don't, don't be under any illusions, you know. But he is also a very skilled political operator. Hmm. So, yeah, James comes in, wants to wrap this whole thing up. And a lot of the English in Ireland, especially the soldiers, are really disappointed. They said... How how can you pardon this guy? You know, he he, he killed our soldiers. He, he he destroyed the English settlement in Ireland. He he invited in the Spanish. You know, you know what's going on here. And the, the truth is, they say no choice. There's no more money. Mm-hmm. This is it. To give you an idea, though, I mean, so the official English account was that thirty thousand of their soldiers had died in the Nine Years' War. But the true total is probably much higher because it's the practice at the time to underestimate your losses. You know, on, on the English side, and and there's lots of there's lots of accounts of this. So at least 30,000 that they admitted died in Ireland. Like a lot of them through disease rather than yeah. battle. But I mean, you can probably multiply that, frankly. And these soldiers had been pressed, which is the term at the time, from Wales and from the west of England. 
you know, they didn't want to be in Ireland. There was a proverb in Chester at the time saying it's better to hang at home than to die like a dog in Ireland. And so Hugh was brought back anyway to England to meet James I at court to solidify this settlement. And his carriage is pelted with rocks and mud and stones as he travels all the way through the west of England, where the soldiers had been recruited from. And as I said, not always willingly, not usually willingly. So, you know, this is another another dimension to this. You know, if you can imagine someone from from Chester or from Bristol sent over to what would have seemed like an alien world to them Mm -hmm. and dying, you know, possibly of musket or pike, but also of dysentery or something, you know, it's it's it's, so it's also a disaster for those people as well. Mm -hmm. This war. And we get the reports that uh, O'Neill and King James are hunting and getting on quite well. Oh yeah, it's it's all in the game, you know, they get on fine. Well, this is the thing as well, during the Nine Year War, you mentioned earlier about the uh, importance of arm shipments from Glasgow. James isn't breaking his back trying to stop arms being imported over to... Uh, Hugh O'Neill. No, although I think late in the day he does begin to cut them off because he's angling to get himself made king of England. But certainly early in the Nine Years' War, yes, absolutely. He's buying his, his arms in Glasgow, which even even then was a major hub. So yeah, there is a remaining issue though. Well, there's a couple. I mean, the, the thing is Hugh still has, has aspirations and so on. But the other thing is religion. This is going to be a major deal in the 1600s in Ireland, obviously. But O'Neill not all like Catholics. I mean, most of the lords in Ireland who come in and submit at this time, including ones who backed the English throughout the Nine Years' War, are also Catholics, but this is going to be an issue. There's also a lot of soldiers and administrators, particularly Chichester. I mentioned Chichester before, who gets made the Lord Deputy, which is the Viceroy, essentially the King's representative in Ireland, who really has his eye on the North, who would be an enemy of Hugh O'Neill and is really against the settlement. And there's a lot of rumours that he's threatening to assassinate Hugh O'Neill. O'Neill appears to believe these rumours. So, in 1607, which is four years later... O'Neill and O'Donnell, they do something very famous. They flee Ireland from the Inishon Peninsula, I think, in Donegal, and go to continental Europe. They want to get into Spain, but they're actually not allowed into Spain because by now mm. there's a peace treaty between England mm. and Spain. They want more Catholic help. They want another go, but they don't They don't get it. They, they die in exile. Hugh O'Neill dies in Rome. And this gives the English the opportunity, and the, and the Scottish, I suppose, at this point, we should say, for one of the most famous turning points in Irish history which is the Ulster Plantation the confiscation of all of their lands yeah. and giving them to settlers from England uh, from Scotland as I said they really lost hardly any land as a result of the war but now all has changed changed utterly and all of their land is confiscated including interestingly people like Niall Garve O'Donnell who was like the O'Donnell who sided with the English and O'Cahan who changed sides in the Nine Years War the people who have taken the English side their land is confiscated too so they go into rebellion and they're killed and they're executed. Their land is taken as well. So this is the thing. What, what's different about the Ulster Plantation, like totally different from the Munster Plantation, is that everything is confiscated in Central and West Ulster. Like East Ulster had basically been depopulated and it's a lot of settlers had already started to come in from Scotland before even there was a formal plantation. But the whole of West and Central Ulster is confiscated and then parceled out again. And a small amount is given to what's called the Loyal Irish. But most of it is given to undertakers who are big settlers from England and from Scotland. And one of the strange things as well, when you talk about the six Ulster counties that are planted, they're not the six counties of Northern Ireland. No, and this is why the Ulster plantation is such a major break in Irish history. It is, and it's a major symbolic event. But actually, you know, the history of Ulster is complicated, and it's more complicated than that. So Donegal and Cavan and Monaghan are planted, 
Antrim and Downer not planted. Yeah. And Antrim and Downer today, obviously, the most Protestant counties and most unionist counties mm. in in Ireland. No, I mean, and the other thing is that, so because there's a, a king who was the king of England and Scotland, the settlers are both English and Scottish, but a lot of Scots, as I said, settled independent of the plantation in eastern Ulster, whereas mm. in western Ulster, the majority of undertakers are actually English, you know, and, and some even, I mean, some northern Protestants do trace their ancestry way back to the Ulster plantation, but there's also waves of settlement afterwards, so... Ulster only became majority Presbyterian a lot later in the 1690s. And that was a result not of the Battle of the Boyne, but of a famine in Scotland, mm. where, where thousands and thousands of, of lowland Scots fled basically to Ulster away from yeah. this famine. So uh, actually the history of Ulster is, is a lot more complicated, but definitely in terms of power and in terms of landholding, it is an, a massive break in, in Ireland's history and in Ulster's history. So really is the end of the native Gaelic-Irish aristocracy, landholding aristocracy. Not, not quite, actually. I, I'd even complicate that a little bit. It's the end of their political power. Yeah. But actually, one of the surprising things for the modern reader is that even at the end of the Nine Years' War, there's still the vast majority of landholders, landlords in Ireland, are Catholics. About 60%. A lot of them are Old English, so that is, they trace their ancestry back to an earlier period of settlement. But about half of them are, are Gaelic-Irish. So about 30% is still owned by Gaelic lords, even after the end of the Nine Years' War. Mm -hmm. So it really takes another round of wars, the religious wars, I feel like, of the 17th century mm -hmm. to, to displace them. But certainly they've lost their political power by this point. Now this is the point where we go into the what-ifs of history, yeah. which is very unhistorical and uh, or ahistorical. But fun, though. But fun <laughs> and interesting. So here's a couple of questions <clears throat> to speculate on. If Hugh O'Neill would have been successful... Would he have been King of Ireland or maybe just a prince and a vassal to Philip II? And Philip II becomes King of Ireland. I'm going to go for option B. So a prince and a vassal to Philip II. But that would have been a much more secure position, like especially if he had a substantial Spanish garrison there, than just being king off his own bat, because the English could have come back at any time. Yeah, I'm going to go for vassal of the King of Spain. And we might uh, speak Spanish better than we do today. And it's funny the way you, you see in the later 17th century and the way some Catholic Irish refer to the Stuarts as Gaels and mm -hmm. kinsmen. And would there have been any circumstance where James VI would have, I don't know, given more substantial support to Hugh O'Neill and come to a better understanding with him, knowing that at some stage he will become King of England too, that he will let Ireland do its own thing and leave the native Irish in charge, or was it always a case where he's just going to take up where Elizabeth I has left off? I think that James would have done anything to make himself King of England. And I mean, actually, there's an interesting essay, like Kenneth Nichols, I think, about how James sent agents around the towns of Ireland to make sure he had the support of the, the English in Ireland, basically. So I think that's the priority. And I think, yeah, because the, in, the interests of England are that you must control Ireland at the time, James is going to have to do that, I think. Because otherwise you lose it to Spain or France or someone, and then you've got a problem. Yes. You know. So, yeah, I think the interests of England dictate that James would have needed to control Ireland, I think. If 
Hugh O'Neill had been very helpful to him in making himself king of England, and that changes the equation a bit. But I'm mm. not sure he needed that book. Like, he hated him a little bit, but he cut it off when it became politically difficult. And um, what, what situation would the English state in Ireland have been in if they had lost the Battle of Kinsale? Well, they would have been in a very difficult position. I mean, you would have lost... Presumably, had they lost, you'd have lost the main army in Ireland. You'd have lost the commander as well. Mm. So my joy, and also most of his important sub-commanders, like George Crew, I mentioned, and others. I'm not sure Chichester were, or Dowker, the northern commanders, were there, but I'd have to check that. But certainly, you'd have lost the main army. You'd have lost the commander. They're to the pit of their collar to fund this thing anyway. You'd been in a pretty bad position. I mean, if the Spanish had landed siege artillery, which I'm not sure they did, but if they did, then it's almost game over, you know, because he could have marched to Dublin and taken over Dublin and hoisted whatever flag it was mm. that he had. I mean, he did have flags. I'm not sure what they were, though. and mm. um, Possibly the Spanish flag as well, over Dublin Castle. So, absolutely, it would have been, yeah, it would have been a major thing. Now, would Elizabeth have mounted a massive effort to retake Ireland? Possibly, and she possibly could have done it. But it, it would have taken just that. It would have taken a huge effort on her behalf. And you can't conscript Englishmen indefinitely to go and fight in Ireland. No, and I mean, again, you're not talking about like the Soviet Union or whatever, which can draft millions of people. Mm. You know, it's it's a relatively weak state and it's a relatively small population. So mm. it's conceivable that that would have been the end of English rule in Ireland, but we can never know. <laughs> the what-ifs of Irish history. The other thing to consider is what would it have looked like had O'Neill won? Like what would an Ireland have looked like and it's interesting to think about that. So it would have been predominantly Irish-speaking, but there would have been still a significant English-speaking presence. So the Pale and towns like, you know, Wexford and Drogheda and Cork and Galway, so if they were English-speaking, that would have probably remained. So it would have been a bilingual country, but certainly the persecution of the Irish language wouldn't have happened. It would have been, of course, a Catholic country. I can't see any circumstance there would have been toleration, I'm afraid. Those weren't the times, the Catholics... Mm-hmm of Europe were not tolerant at the time like the Spanish were completely intolerant really of other religions so first of all the Jews and the Muslims but then also the Protestants after the Reformation so it would have been Catholic state it would have been just as difficult for Hugh O'Neill to establish a centralised state though as the English like he would have had to do an awful lot of negotiation and it would have been extremely difficult to make any kind of centralised state out of all these lordships so he would have had the same problem it might have been a very unstable state going forward unless the Spanish managed to kind of impose some order. But then they would have been in the role of conquerors, just like the English. So it, it would have retained the, the, the weaknesses that made it such a problem for the English, but at the same time made resistance to the English so difficult. Well, there you go. And uh, it's definitely a fascinating, fascinating period in Irish history. And as we've mentioned him a few times, um, Dr. Jim O'Neill, there are some really, really good lectures by him on YouTube talking about the Nine Years' War. And, and he has a book on also on the Nine Years' War. Yes, which is definitely worth reading. And we should say also, though, before we finish, like, you know, about how the Nine Years' War has been seen subsequently in Irish history. Well, how do you think it's been perceived later in Irish history? Well, there's a lot there. So, I mean, you know, first of all, I mean, a lot, a lot of people consider Hugh O'Neill to be a, a true fighter for Catholicism and the Gales at the time because he was so obviously a political animal. But that said, the Annals of the Four Masters, for example, which is an Irish language history of Ireland, or chronicle better to say, which is composed, I think, in the 1630s, composed, I think, in continental Europe by, by clerics. You know, they, they certainly take O'Neill much more seriously as a 
you know, a true fighter for, for the Gales or for Ireland and for the true religion than they took, for example, the Desmonds or Shane O'Neill or anyone like that. So they think even the early histories of the time in the Irish language, they do say, they do portray O'Neill as, uh, the concept of nationalism is not around, but they do sort of portray O'Neill as a national hero, if you like, even very early. There's also the, the life of Aru O'Donnell, which is also composed in Irish. And, and again, and that promotes the idea of this is a, a kind of crusade for the freedom of Ireland and for Catholicism. And But this time, Hugh O'Donnell is the hero, not Hugh O'Neill. Quite early you see that. That said, I mean, in the 1640s, the Confederate Catholics, which is um, kind of an independent Catholic government during the civil wars at that time, they don't look back on Hugh O'Neill and say, Hugh O'Neill was a great guy. You know, they say, they say no, no, we're, we're loyal to the king. You know, we're a different beast. And by that time, of course, you have a fusion of the old English and Gaelic-Irish politically. It's a bit complicated in the 17th century. The ones who were in exile, the losers, see O'Neill as a hero, is not necessarily the perception of those left behind. Among the common people, of course, we really have no idea, this, among the vast majority of people, how they view these events, possibly just as a series of catastrophes, I suspect. But moving on in Irish history, you know, certainly the, the English accounts, they talk about the, the full conquest of Ireland, and they, they do present it as a line, so from the Nine Years' War to the Cromwell to the victory of King William and, the, and they say this is, these were just steps in the conquest of Ireland you know and they absolutely say this like in the Irish Parliament in the 18th century you know there's or in Trinity College actually there's a huge painting of the Battle of Kinsale there's also a painting of the Siege of Derry and the, the Battle of the Boyne so they view these certainly as you know steps in the line to the full consolidation of the Kingdom of Ireland you know now by the time Irish nationalism as we understand the term comes around in the 19th century like you know we could talk for a long time about what's the difference between nationalism and what went before and uh, lots of scholars have and it's quite difficult but certainly people like the young Irelanders and all they're writing about the Battle of the Yellow Ford as something to be emulated in its great Irish victory just like you know Battle of Clontarf or the Battle of Penberg or something and Hugh O'Neill is kind of an unequivocal national hero and funny enough though you know the people who come to it after independence they look back and they're kind of disappointed with Hugh O'Neill with all the politicking and stuff like Ofwelan and so so on. Ofwelan is not really a historian, but it's a very readable book and so on. And, and it's interesting he comes at from a from the perspective of a post civil war anti treaty and and it's all he talks about the problem with division and skullduggery and ego and stuff. And uh, you know there's a lot of projection there. But O'Neill certainly when I was in school and I'm going to ask you about this, Carl. You know O'Neill was a good Irish hero, and he if he'd have won, if we'd have been free. You know that's what I was taught. Oh, and I should absolutely. add, by the way, that I went to a Protestant primary school, uh, but they were very keen on this message, nevertheless. Well, this is the thing that. Uh thinking back to primary school and the history lessons that we have or that we had at the time very little of it stands out but Hugh O'Neill and the Flight of the Earls does stand out I can definitely remember doing that and it being like the, a really important part of Irish history the lost opportunity of having uh, Ireland these two great leaders and what would have happened uh, what could have happened so he is very very well remembered and as you discuss them there, you start to think that are Hugh O'Neill's interests Ireland or are they Hugh O'Neill? Yep. I mean, when I went to college and when I studied this, it was very much like he was just a cynical animal. And I'm not, I'm not suggesting the scholars fell down because there's also ones arguing the opposite at the time, but this is the early 2000s. But I think it's on the balance. O'Neill is really a political animal. He's... He's self-interested in the end of the day. But so was everybody else. Yeah. So, you know. But, needless to say, he's a fascinating figure. He's incredibly intelligent. And 
his great military leader. Yeah, and one of the interesting things, like we've only glimpses, I think, into Hugh's personality, but like he comes across from what he does as this kind of ice cold operator, which no doubt he was. But in person, apparently, he's very emotional. Like he bursts into tears regularly, and you know, he breaks down emotionally and stuff like this. And you know, he culti- he's very good at cultivating relationships with people. He's actually appears to be a very gregarious person. What all this adds up to, I don't know, because he certainly never let this get in the way of the, you know, the icy political logic. So maybe, maybe this is also a, a form of manipulation. Who knows? Just to finish up, though, I mean, if you think about today, do you think O'Neill and the Nine Years' War are well remembered? Like, I, I can't think of any statues or anything of O'Neill around the place. Like. No, I think just generally, we know there was a Nine Year War, and it led to the flight of the Earls. Now that's not completely true. Yeah, you know, the one doesn't necessarily lead to the other. But in terms of the details mm. of it, you know, not so much. Yeah, I mean, it is very complicated. It said. is incredibly complicated. And, you know, you can't read history backwards. Yeah. It doesn't make sense looking back from our era now. Yeah. I mean, I what guess my, my point is, though, I mean, um, you'd kind of think, like, nationalisms around the world, you know, they tend to love people like O'Neill, you know? And they're big statues of people like him around the world. Yeah. It's none that I can think of in Ireland. I'm struggling to think if there is any in Dublin. Or or any or streets named after him or anything like that, you know? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it doesn't help, of course, that the place where O'Neill is from is, is Northern Ireland today. Yes. Although, interestingly, I mean, some not all of the O'Neills ended up as losers in the game, you know? So one of the Prime Ministers of Northern Ireland, Terence O'Neill, was in a roundabout way descended from Hugh O'Neill, you know. And another Prime Minister of uh, Northern Ireland, Captain O'Neill's cousin, was at Chichester. <laughs> so there you go, Chichester cleric. Well, this is it. This is why the, this is why this stuff is actually relevant, you know. But it's not. It, 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 in fact, it doesn't always travel in as straight a line as as one might like. Like so, okay, the main branch of O'Neill's family is obviously exiled and dispossessed, but you know, subordinate branches end up as grandees and eventually prime ministers of Northern Ireland, you know? Yeah. So this is the complexities of history. I mean, the Chichester, was he, was he actually descended from Ireland? He was. Yeah. Good Lord. And, um, you know, it depended as well whether families converted to the Church of Ireland. And, the, and now, that the, impacted their fortunes. And this is, in the 17th century, is the decisive thing. So it doesn't yeah. matter what your ancestry is as long as you're part of the state church. Yeah. Um, and I guess in the next episode, maybe we can get onto that. Indeed. Indeed, we can. Now, that was interesting. Hopefully, this episode would lead you to read up a bit more on this. And there's some great articles on John's website, The Irish Story, theirstory.com, about the Nine Years' War, about Hugh O'Neill, and all these different subjects. So, hopefully, it's worth delving into a bit deeper. Jim O'Neill's book as well. Uh, Going back a bit, a book called Irish Battles by uh, Hayes McCoy. Is it like classic? So Jim O'Neill argues with a lot of the things, but it was how I, I was introduced to the period. The work of Nicholas Canny, if you want to really get into it, um, on the flight of the Earls, I highly recommend. Now, there we go. So that is the end of the episode. And on behalf of myself, Cahill Brennan, and my co-presenter, John Dorney, I want to thank you very much. And you should check out John's website, theirstory.com. And please check out our friends at radio.ie for all your radio archiving solutions. Now you can find this episode and all our previous episodes on our website, irishhistoryshow.ie. You can follow us on Twitter at irishhistorypod 
or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. And if you get a chance, please rate and review the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. It does help us and it pushes us up in the ratings. And if you like this episode, please share it on your social media. We are really grateful for all the support we receive from you, the listeners. And John has set up a Patreon for the Irish Story and the Irish History Show. And if you would consider supporting the show, there is a link in the show notes. And thank you very much for that too. We really do appreciate it. So on behalf of myself and John, thank you very much for listening and we'll speak to you soon. Radio.ie hosts the Irish History Show podcast because history matters. Radio turns 100 years young this year. Radio's history is powered by Radio Archives. For radio archiving solutions from people passionate about radio, visit radio.ie.